at her best, never let it rest, until the good becomes better and the better becomes best. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Craig and Jonah. Uh, we have an interview here today. Uh, Thomas Pelega. Did I get that right, Thomas? Uh, yes. Yes, Close? you did. Okay. Uh, so uh, we we haven't done a lot of interviews, but uh, Thomas and I found each other on Twitter uh, at, at uh, on the, I guess, similar side of the disputes with the trads. <laughs> and uh, I said, I got to get this guy on the show. So we started messaging each other. And uh, Thomas was kind enough to to come on the show. Uh, before we get started, um, I'm going to give Thomas a chance to introduce himself, but I am going to link below to a pretty extended interview you did, probably two hours uh, within the last couple of weeks over on the Catholic Versus podcast that gives a lot of your background. And so uh, I'm going to give you an opportunity to kind of summarize the, the journey uh, today, but I'm going to encourage people to co check that out to learn more about your kind of how you got to where you are now, and then we'll start talking about the stuff that we talk about here. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you, Craig. Um, and so, yeah, I, as Craig had said, you know, I would definitely recommend going through there. It's quite extensive. Uh, but the basic summary is, you know, I was raised in a very conservative Catholic uh, upbringing. I was a cradle Catholic my whole life. Um, and, um, you know, as I, you know, grew up, went through a lot of, uh, you know, questions in my faith and, you know, eventually at some point, you know, I did become, you know, a traditionalist, uh, was very, you know, committed to that whole worldview. Um, and then eventually, you know, moved past that, um, to where I am now, uh, which is, uh, pretty, pretty far down the, uh, the progressive, uh, worldview. Um, so I would say that's just like the basic summary of, you know, like where I'm coming from. Um, and yeah, if you want the, the in-depth story about how that is, you know, I got a, a great two hour basically video on, um, all that. Can you, uh, anything you can share with us about your state in life or your married children, anything like that? Yeah. So I'm, I'm single currently. Uh, I live, uh, uh, alone here at, uh, my house. I got, uh, uh, no, uh, no mortgage or, uh you know, uh, rent. Wow. I own the place outright. <clears throat> uh, living the dream. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, it won't be for a long, you know, because like I'm, I'm a student and, you know, so I'm going to become a, uh, a software developer. Uh, and then eventually, you know, hopefully I'll be able to get out of this place. Uh, but for now it's, you know, it's, it's very, it's a very convenient, you know, very comfortable, uh, you know, living style. I can have my own home, uh, and very minimal expenses, um, but, uh, that took a lot of work okay. <laughs> there. Um, but, uh, I, I do have a girlfriend, um, uh, who's great and she's awesome. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like the, uh, the state in life right now. And, uh, when you're not doing all that stuff, you're on uh tormenting traditionalist on Twitter, it seems so. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> it's not, uh, it's not the only thing I do, but, uh, I do do that sometimes. <laughs> so, uh, I wanted to kind of hone in on this this point a little bit. I think in your in your interview with CBS, you I think you used the term deconstructionist, 
is yeah. sort of how you describe your style and and I can relate to that a little bit but I want to why don't you describe kind of your what that means for you how you approach it and then I kind of want to just sort of segue into okay what do you actually believe like it's one thing to kind of pick apart weaknesses and other positions but I'm really curious about what you actually believe so why don't you go ahead and address that yeah, so uh, deconstructionism is uh, a kind of postmodern, uh, um, you know, methodology of philosophy, and and basically what it is is it's examining uh, various narratives that exist um, and looking inside someone's own narrative and uh, finding its own internal contradictions and then bringing those out. Right. And showing that um, it, this is very different than uh, an imposition of a worldview from the outside. Right. So I could have maybe like a atheistic narrative. Right. World. And so I could approach the Bible or Catholicism from, you know, my atheistic narrative. And I would be imposing that narrative from the outside. Um, that's very different than deconstructionism, which is like taking you know, the propositions and, you know, uh, beliefs of, you know, people who follow a certain narrative uh, worldview and and using it in on itself to saying like, well, if you say this, but also this, how can that be both simultaneously true? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, that's not really I don't really consider it like like my philosophy. I'm not like um, like my philosophy isn't a, a deconstruction, but it's a method. Mm -hmm. And it is a lot of what I do on Twitter, right, mm -hmm. uh, is to use deconstruction to help break open people's narratives, right? So <clears throat> I used to be a traditionalist, and it, it's a very cohesive, powerful worldview, right? Um, it's very appealing to a certain kind of person, uh, you know, especially if you're a, a young, angry male, uh, you know, which I used to be. And that's, you know, that's exactly what attracted to me to it, you know? Um, you know, are I you just, no longer young or are you no longer angry? Both. Yeah, I got I got older, uh, <laughs> you know, so because I'm I'm 30 now that, okay. uh, you know, I'm not a young man anymore. Uh, certainly not old, you know, but Feels so, young to us. But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I'm not that 20 year old guy. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, when you're you know, when I was a traditionalist, you know, I was 20 years old. Right. Uh, and then also, yes, very angry, you know, just real, you know, just kind of have the, like the blood boiling rage about the world uh, that I had kind of been, you know, cheated and the world's not fair and everything's fundamentally broken, really, because because in order to be a traditionalist at some basic level, you have to believe that the whole world is profoundly broken. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so we need a radical, radical transformation in the world. And that doesn't just apply to the non-Catholic world. That very specifically applies also to the Catholic world, right? You have to believe that Catholicism is profoundly and deeply broken in some some way, you know, and different traditions are going to have like slightly different answers to like why it's broken. Mm -hmm. But at the heart of it, you have to say that, you know, uh, if the if the gates of hell haven't prevailed, Right. Um, you know, the this the the powers of darkness, I mean, are sieging and boiling over the walls. Mm -hmm. right? um, and this is the central kind of core narrative that 
fuels traditionalism and then rationalizes all kinds of radical extreme uh, behaviors. And and part of it is like the reason why they view that is like the church really is in very severe, serious crisis. You know, and like and th that part of the traditionalist narrative, I think, has always been the most accurate and most correct part that they have. Right. Like when we look through church history, there are very few times in history and maybe maybe even none uh, that we could describe as cataclysmic and catastrophic is what we're going through right now. Mm. And there's a lot of people, you know, especially if the more like kind of. Um, conservative Catholic bents, you know, probably a good example is somebody like uh, like Bishop Barron. For, um, is that like, you know, the policy of nothing is wrong, everything is fine, just carry on and carry on. And, you know, that's obviously not true, right? Like, that's obviously not true. You know, in the United States, you know, in, in 1960, 80% of Catholics went to uh, mass weekly 80 percent mm -hmm. right today it's about 20 percent in the united states and mm -hmm. it's similar statistics in all developed worlds right um and by the way this same pattern of de-religionization in the catholic church is happening not just in european country or you know it happened first in europe then it came over here to the Americas or the other Anglosphere world, you know, like Australia and Canada. Um, but like the exact same pattern is happening in Latin America, right? It's already happening. And even already, you know, if you if you know the signs of it, it's already starting to happen in even sub-Sahara Africa, right? You know, like this process is happening everywhere. And and the the de the, like the de-religization of Catholicism. Is very different than how it experienced in like Protestantism, right? So this is often one thing like people try to like you know say like or are they kind of like similar? So for example, in like 1960, the church attendance rate of like both mainline and evangelical uh, churches was 50 percent. Mm -hmm. Today, it's 50 percent. There's been no change. Really? Yeah, um, and. That's something because, like, you know, the Protestant ethos has always been like, ma you know, mass, you know, because it's not even mass, right? You know, it's a Sunday service or, you know, whatever kind of, you know, terminology you use. But, like, fundamentally, right, it's optional, right? Like, it's a, it's a cool thing to go do, right? Like, but, like, there is no, like, substantial supernatural, like, event happening there. Mm-hmm. Like it's a it's ultimately a, a glorified structured bible study mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. which is fine that's great like i mean i'd mm -hmm. like bible studies and all that good jazz but that is categorically different than the catholic perspective that like this is the reenactment um the re-experience to be moved back to calvary itself mm -hmm. and to actually be able to touch our lord jesus christ in the flesh mm -hmm. that's just not the same Mm -hmm. And so, you know, uh, Catholics have always been very, very high church attendees up until very recently, where now it's gone completely upside down. Did it? Was there a pivot point or is it just been a, a steady progression since what, 1960 or whatever? For Catholics? Well, that's the, that's the pivot point. Okay. Right. Right. 19, 19, uh, 1960. And if you really look at the statistics, it starts slightly before then. Mm -hmm. uh, 
with specifically with very young people. Mm -hmm. So if we look to, you know, like 18 to 30 year olds, we see this trend happening, you know, back down into um, uh, 1955. Mm -hmm. And this whole process is really centers around uh, the first and foremost thing, which is the coming of Vatican II, right? So there's a lot of people who, especially young people, who, you know, this the pill had come out. And the pill is like an earth-shattering moment, not just in church history, but of human history, right? Mm -hmm. Like This is one of the most important uh, technological and social developments of all time. Right. Because it fundamentally is a technology that allows us to totally transform all human relationships mm -hmm. in a very effective, broad scale way. When when I, I know it, there's been methods around for a while, but what do you yeah. peg kind of the year when it was reasonably effective? Uh, you say around 1960 or so, or so, I would have thought it was sooner than that. But yeah, so. It's actually, so this actually like that we go through this. So if we look at the sexual revolution uh, tracks directly with the demographic shift, they're really the same thing. And, and so the beginning of the sexual revolution properly really starts in around 1800. 1800. I would have yeah. thought it was the late 1800s or early 1900s. But. Yeah. yeah. So what this is, is that the sexual patterns and reproductive norms and eth ethics of human beings start to have a radical shift in around 1800. Huh. And we first see this actually in France. France is one of the first ones to start this change where we see a significant drop in the birth rates. Now, this hmm. it, a lot of this isn't driven by like what we would classically consider like artificial contraception or anything like that, right? These are a change of norms, right? And patterns, right? of behaviors and choices in people's lives where no longer we're just like, well, of course we should just like have like eight kids. Like that's just kind of like, well, mm -hmm. everybody does that. Right. Like, mm -hmm. um, now there was a self-conscious decision of like, well, actually maybe, maybe we should attempt to have less children. That's a real profound change in the, in the sexual ethos of human beings. Um, you know, it's also, do you, do you think that it was because like, Prior to that, people just didn't want to limit their kids or just it was not possible to. I mean, those seem like different things. Or was it a result of the Industrial Revolution and people were working more in yeah. like standard jobs or yeah. what we would consider to be more standardized jobs? So I would say uh, uh, it definitely is directly connected with the Industrial Revolution. Mm hmm and the industrial revolution does several things. You ask the question of like, well, is it because we just didn't want to have a bunch of kids? That is the answer, right? So in a pre-industrial society, having children is the primary method of generating wealth for oneself. It's the most efficient, productive way to generate wealth for you. And so in an agricultural society, there's enormous pressure to have a lot of children because that's how you become successful and wealthy. And, you know, I lived in Tanzania and we, you know, we have that we're going through like in the village where I lived, we're going through that transition from subsistence farming into modern, you know, uh, industrial society. Like, so I was like right there as was happening, right? Like you can see both sides and this is exactly how they view is like, I mean, children are wealth. 
right? Um, the way I like to put it is that like, you know, children are better even than slaves because, you know, you know, they always do what you tell them and they eat half as much. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And yeah. so the pressure, you know, to, to have lots of children is very high. Um, and, you know, in a pre-industrial society, we also have, uh, not, uh, well-established sanitation. So this is where like the demographic shift, it's a combination of the industrial revolution and its production of like sanitation standards. And this dramatically decreases uh, the amount of fatalities that people are experiencing. So one of the reasons you just had a bunch of kids is because most of them didn't make right. it. Yeah. Right. right. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's how it is in nature, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah. most, you know, when like in a pre-modern world, right? Like every organism right and we're organisms right we're animals like you have to try to reproduce like almost desperately right like because like so few are going to live right like you just have to squeeze out every ounce of possibility and that's what we see is in the pre-industrial world like fertility rates uh, on average were about six per women or mm -hmm. per woman right and yet the population growth rate was effectively zero you know, like that's kind of like that's what we're looking at. And to like give an idea, is that about 25 percent of the population would not have children. Uh, this is pretty consistent in most like uh, agrarian societies. And so what it means is that like if you're you know, if you're having children, you know, if you're a mother, you know, the average number of uh, you know children you're going to have is eight. Mm -hmm. And yet again, population growth is effectively zero for several thousands of years. That is the, cool. that is the norms in the world that we lived in. Industrialization uh, changes that dynamic. And like when you have like a normal job, right? Um, having a bunch of kids now, instead of being a source of wealth for you and your family, it is now a huge financial burden, right? And it's a total inversion of our relationship as parents to our children, right? Um, and so that's what changes. People are like, well, yeah, maybe I don't wanna have so many kids. And once you have that change of mindset, right? Then people are gonna seek out methods, whether cultural norms or practices or however, like there's stuff different ways of doing it, of having less children, mm -hmm. right? Um, and this is kind of when we start to get into like a lot of Victorian, you know, uh, cultural ethos is about reducing, uh, fertility, right. Of helping, you know, reduce the amount of sexual activity, uh, and procreative, you know, sex so that you can actually become a wealthier yourself. Because now the key to, uh, financial success and well-being for your family is how few children you can have. Mm -hmm. Right. And. And prior to like very effective contraceptive methods, right? Um, you know, when we see this in the reduction of birth rates, like we get down to like fertility rates of around like four-ish, right? Um, and it's really when we see the next kind of like big phase that happens is around the 20s, 1920s and 30s, uh, which very interesting. If you look at, you know, the total amount of sexual activity that Americans are having, Right. So that means everywhere from like 
you know, people who are married having sex, the people outside of marriage having sex, to even down to like masturbation, right? All sexual activity of any mm -hmm. kind. Mm -hmm. The horniest Americans <laughs> have ever been is in the 1920s and 30s. Why That's, is that? Why is that? Well, I think it's a couple reasons. Um, so one, you know, what we're seeing, what, what like when we look at like sex drive, right? Like um, having a lot of physical work and labor, right, uh, is really important for sex drive. Also, societal problems are really important for sex drive. Um, and uh, so we have like this combination of you know older traditional agricultural like uh, uh, metabolical you know uh, uh, like norms in society, which just that's another thing that we happen, you know, like in the industrial revolution transition, right? Like as we're moving out of agriculture, right? Like even down to like our metabolism changes dramatically. So like one of the things that like is very noticeable is like your choice of uh, clothing. So when you're a subsistence farmer, right? Like you consume you know, on average, right, like usually about like four or 5,000 calories a day. That's pretty typical, right? Now, obviously, if you and me were eating four or 5,000, you know, calories a day, you know, I mean, we would turn into beluga whales, right? Mm -hmm. It was just mm -hmm. like, that's, cra that's crazy. Um, but <clears throat> these people are very thin, you know, and yep. that is because they live a very different, you know, metabolical lifestyle, right? Um, and so our biology goes through, you know, in terms of that, like a big transition. And one of the things as you see is like the clothing preferences, right? So, you know, agricultural people have a preference to really cover the whole body with lots of clothes. You know, it'll be out, um, you know, I live near the Amish, right? And, you know, we they, do too. Yeah. okay, well, yeah, so, you know, it is right. Like, and that's the thing, like, <clears throat> they don't just wear lots of clothing because just because like they're masochists okay it's actually preferable it's comfortable right when you live you know a much more manual you know agricultural type of lifestyle right it's actually much more comfortable um and it's the same thing when i lived in tanzania you know you know people who were you know farmers you know they covered their bodies with clothing from head to toe right um and really it's because it's more comfortable um and as we transition out, right, we one of the first things that we see is people just start taking the clothes off, right? People start walking around with T-shirts and shorts, right? And then, of course, like immediately, you know, then we get into the crazy stuff of like people are wearing, you know, like bikinis and, you know, speedos to the beach. Um, but that transition is not motivated by like some like weird sense of like, um, you know, sexual perversion or anything it really is motivated and driven by a change in the metabolism of human beings and a drive towards what is just naturally comfortable right so so and i and i apologize if we're going to get to this so no. is the so comparing sort of the modern off pudgy office man like me to the yeah. <laughs> and me the, the oh. amish the amish guy that's uh eats five thousand calories a day as skinny as heck does no. does his lifestyle make him his uh, sex drive higher or lower than us? Oh, That's high. one of the things that we've talked. Okay, way up, way okay. up. They're all, all right. crazy horny. Okay, yeah. well, well, we've wondered that. We've tried to get Amish on here, and so far we've <laughs> failed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, and that's you know that's just like a normal part 
you know, because like like sex drive is, you know, predominantly driven by, you know, our biology, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's a biological, you know, mm -hmm. drive, right? Like just in the same way, like you're hungry. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, if you're working out in the field every day, yeah, you're going to be really hungry, you know? Um, and so, yeah, one of the things is, yeah, I mean, like agricultural people way hornier, hmm. you know, and that's just, okay. and, and this is a similar thing of like people who work out, right? So even in like modern people who like work out much more, they have much higher sex drives. Okay. Right? And this we've is- We've wondered that. We've, we've yeah. wondered that. And we're half agricultural, half people that work out. So I don't know if that creates some kind of like super- Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> we've wondered- This I mean, is all of your problems. Yeah. If you listen to the show, that's what we talk about. We're like, well, if we get in better shape, that just makes makes abstinence worse for us. And, <laughs> and right. uh, so we've been- assuming that and, and you know and and as we encounter people that say ah i can go two weeks without having sex with my wife it's no problem yeah. at all and i wonder are they just like are we much, are they much better about controlling their desires do they have less desire or are they like the people in the movie wally where they're just so big and they just sit in the chair yeah and they just barely touch each other <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um you know it also has to do with like you know like your consumption of like media and entertainment yeah. right so, you know, if you're watching, you know, TV or listening to the radio or on the YouTube scrolling and all that stuff, like that's also going to reduce your sex drive. Right. So don't watch too much of this, this show or is it's going to kill yeah. your sex drive? Maybe this is the cure for, for, for their problems we talk about. Just keep watching our videos and your, your need for sex right. and all that will go away. Um, but that has to do, um, you know, a lot of like, um, you know, when we're, because like media and the internet, like just generally, whether it's like TV, radio, right? Like all these like modern, you know, and we, when I say modern, I mean, we even go back to like the twenties, right? Like, you know, radio and stuff like this, mm -hmm. this level of entertainment and enjoyment is very like big rushes of dopamine, mm -hmm. right? Um, I mean, it's, it's crazy how pleasurable, you know, modern life really is. And when you have that, um, you know, cause kind of like, you know, prior to like the modern world, you know, the primary sources of like dopamine, right. Like you get like really good hits, um, you know, is pretty much like sex and like, you know, communal singing. Right. And then alcohol, hmm. right. Like these are, this is how, like, if you want to feel good, like those, are, that's how you feel good. Um, and it's also one of the reasons why like agricultural people, they drink so much, right. Hmm um one is because you can do farming very comfortably you know or like other types of like you know uh you know traditional like manual labor like very comfortably and be a little buzzed right mm -hmm. like um in fact you know depending on you know if you're if you're good at it, it can actually help increase like your total endurance for it right like you know especially if it's like harvest time and you got to go out in the field and you got to work for literally 14 hours 16 hours straight like into the night right because mm -hmm. you're like I mean, we have to work now. Mm -hmm. um, that's really taxing on the body, right? And also just like, you know, manual labor. I mean, it, it hurts, right? You know, the amount of like exhaustion, right? You're extracting, you know, a lot of your biological health. It's not like working out, right? Um, where like working out will help build up your body. Uh, and you see that with like concentration camp, you know, vi victims, right? Like they're working all day long and what happens to them, they shrivel up and they die, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
So that pain, right? Like, so you're having a lot of pain. And one of the ways if like, if you're out there communal singing and you know, you're all a little bit buzz, right? Like that's how you enjoy life. Right. And this is too, like when you go to like traditional side the amount of singing that they do, it, I think it's probably one of the things that you notice right away. Right. Everybody's singing, you know, it's, it's very common. Um, and that's because I'm like, well, they don't have radio. They can't turn on, you know, audio and listen to a book, right? They can't, you know, get onto a podcast and, you know, hear a bunch of guys singing to talk. And so, you know, alcohol, communal singing, and then sex, right? Like these are the ways, these are goods that ordinary agricultural people have access to. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's right. But now when we bring into the modern world, right, like we, the amount of like uh, pleasure seeking and dopamine access is like everywhere, you know, in a lot of ways, like um, we really all become much more like the wealthy aristocrats of like, you know, pre-industrial societies. Um, the amount of wealth and prosperity we have is really quite equivalent to like your normal lords and ladies, you know, of previous times. Um, and, and so with that comes with, you know, fine cuisine and music and clothing and entertainment and all these other sources and so the kind of like drive towards you know sex is always going to be just like more secondary in that kind of environment because you just have other ways to enjoy yourself so the aristocrats had less sex than the common people of that era i think so yeah i think that's like it's quite obvious um because like hmm. mo like modern like aristocrats suffered from the same kind of diseases and problems that modern people do, right? Whether that's obesity, allergies, uh, you know, faintness, you know, like just having like metabolical issues of faintness and like, you know, uh, melancholy, right? You know, these kinds of like, like these are all modern problems. Like these are modern diseases and the aristocrats are suffering from these same problems. Fascinating. Well, uh, all right. Well, uh, what was, what's, what's the next step in the, in our discussion then? What do you, uh, uh, yeah, well, I would really like, I'm very kind of like, if you have questions for me, uh, I, you know, of like things that you've heard or you have like kind of interesting, you know, uh, questions for me, I would love to hear. Well, uh, let's start this. So if people that have been following the show kind of know what we talk about, but to the extent that you haven't really seen a lot of our content, let me give you kind of a snapshot and then I'll hey. segue. So uh, Joan and I are um, what I would say conservative, but not tradition, traditionalist Catholics, married kids, the natural family planning and um, the agony that goes with it, the agony that goes <laughs> with that. And uh, you know, we talk a lot about the, the struggles of the flesh that men especially have Catholic men are not um, exceptions to that. Maybe we're, we're, we have a bigger problem with that than, but, you know, so we talk a lot about that kind of stuff in, in how to, how to kind of juggle all these balls and, and, and to kind of put it in, in context. Um, Cause I think this is kind of where you and I will, will probably be a little bit of different mind, but you know, natural family planning, in my opinion, or humani vitae, the, the, sort of not using artificial contraception and stuff that a lot of people use now, in my opinion, isn't the hard part about being 
this kind of Catholic. It's not easy, but it's it's not the hardest part. The hard, the, it becomes hard when you pair that with the other stuff that we as Catholics believe, which is let's say no masturbation. Yep. We got a catechism section on that. Um, it's lots of quote unquote illicit stuff that that people do, Catholics do to try and um, deal with the periods of abstinence, or wow. you just have a ton of kids like like I do. Yep. Um, you know, in in missteps so to speak are are mortal sins potentially like could damn you to hell like that package together is sort of the environment that yeah, we live in and overwhelming. yeah and so we have sort of sort of tried to chart our way through that and either make sense of sense of that or in in some ways i guess try to deconstruct a little bit of that because i kind of came to this podcast from the standpoint of either some of some of that is wrong or it's it's nearly impossible for any good Catholic to live out. I, I I couldn't decide which one it was. Okay, in the so, modern world. in the modern world. So why yeah. don't you why don't you comment on that? <laughs> yeah. So actually, you know, I was like listening to uh, one of your guys' videos, and that's what really stuck out to me is that last part, right? Is that's kind of like you know, it seems like that package you were talking about, right? Like it seems in practice like almost impossible. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, like, how is it that like this? Right. Because part of the one of the question is like, well, is this package really the Catholic package? Right. Yep. Maybe yep. are we did we miss? Right. Did we miss something? Right. Did we miss the memo? Mm -hmm. um, or if it is the package. Right. Like, why is it that in practice, like this is like virtually impossible way to live? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I actually came and I, I was thinking about that very issue that you guys had brought up. And, you know, my first response to that uh, is uh, the words of Christ, right? Christ says that my yoke is easy, right? Mm -hmm. And so I would make the first proposition to really not just your problem in this question of like discernment, but any Catholic in the discernment, right? Like if your yoke is heavy that's not the yoke of christ i think that's one of the first things that we have to like remember right the the heavy yoke is the yoke of the devil the heavy yoke is the yoke of the pharisees right the yoke that's light is the way of christ and so if something is like unbearable right that's an indication that you're carrying somebody's yoke that's not Christ's. So that would be my first answer to that question. <clears throat> um, you know, another thing when we address this, you know, issue of like dealing with like that package. So I think this is one of the things. So I grew up with this package too, by the way. You know, my family, you know, practiced uh, natural family planning. That's why I'm the oldest of eight. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, you guys know. Yeah, <laughs> living it. <laughs> um, you know, so, and we took that very seriously, right? And, you know, uh, and I, you know, I was enculturated with this, right? Very strict, you know, you know, saying, like you said, right? Not just the NFP, right? Um, you know, it comes with the whole package, right? Mm -hmm. Like, <clears throat> and so I grew up with that exact same package, right? I was, you know, raised in that. Um, 
And I think one of the first things that's like really important is like when we when we open up the catechism, right? We look at the catechism and particularly the section on masturbation, right? Because here's the thing, like, especially in our faith journeys, right? Most of us aren't really dealing with NFP, right? In the beginning of our faith journey, right? Because like, you know, we hit puberty long before we're into marriage, Right. So the immediate area that we first encountered this, the Catholic sexual teachings of this like package that right, like that's very common is in the question of masturbation. Mm -hmm. Right. And one of the things that I think that's very important to note in that package is that it kind of almost systematically ignores what the catechism actually says on this subject. Right. So what the catechism is very clear, right, is that although the theology, yeah, there you go, right? The good it's book. Tabbed. We we it's worn <laughs> off the page here. We talked about so much. That's good. Yeah. That's good, right? Um, it's very clear that, like, yes, the catechism teaches that masturbation is a grave matter. Mm -hmm. The first thing of pulling apart this package, and we we're talking about the deconstruction, right? So this first one is that like grave matter is not mortal sin, right? Moral sin isn't grave matter, and it teaches that in the catechism, right? Grave matter is one of three conditions that have to exist in order for a mortal sin to, to occur, right? And with the question of masturbation, the catechism is extra clear, very explicit, that there are many common uh, reasons um besides for the fact that of just like it's its own like fundamental nature that makes uh essentially masturbation in most circumstances if not like all to be a venial sin mm -hmm. right um and i think that's that's the first kind of like like opening point of like okay well the catechism is very clear that like if you are suffer like if you were having scrupulosity about like your eternal soul right because you're masturbating, right? Or you did masturbate or like, okay, well, I did this. Like, well, now I have to go to confession before I can go to like Sunday mass, right? I mean, I'm sure you've- Or go to communion at least, yeah. Yeah, right. Like, or right, like, well, I did it, you know, and I didn't make the confession. So, you know, obviously I, I, I got to go to mass, right? But, you know, I didn't make the confession. So like, I'm just not going to receive communion, right? Mm -hmm. Like- <laughs> This experience is very common for traditionalists and other very conservative Catholics, you know, who aren't traditionalists, right? And and I'm, that's another thing. Like, I know there's an important, like, very important difference between the two, right? So I was not raised traditionalist. Mm -hmm. I became traditionalist, right? Me I was, too. you know, I was raised really more like where you guys are coming from, which is very conservative Catholic. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, so that's the first thing we have to like crack open is this like this constant anxiety and fear, right? Of just like, well, you know what? I had a moment of weakness. And so like my soul is in jeopardy. That is wrong, right? And the catechism is very clear about that. And I would also suggest like that level of scrupulosity, right? Of like undue and like uh, unnecessary Catholic guilt. That's the same thing that caused Martin Luther to leave the church, right? This constant obsession of like, well, oh, I did this one little thing. Okay. I have to go to confession now and I have to like confess all of these sins. Right. And, and so what we see is like, that's the path of the devil and that's the path outside of the church. That's what that does. Right? So, <laughs> so two things. Um, one, 
and I think this sort of relates to comments you've made about contraception and the fact that 90 some percent of Catholics use birth control. What do we do with that? Uh, I have the sort of the same feeling about this is, I mean, I would say the percentage of, especially men, I think this is a predominantly a man issue, not, not exclusively, but predominantly a man issue is if such a high percentage of men do it, at least occasionally, how could it possibly be a grave or objectively wrong matter? Like that's where I, I struggle to reconcile that. Cause it's like either, either it's bad and we should avoid it, but if it's that bad and avoidable, how come nearly every man that I know has a problem with it to some degree, right? What do we do with that information? Yeah. I think that like my, my sexual, you know, thesis on the question is there's two basic answers to that question. Number one is that the same way that the catechism approaches masturbation, right, can and should be applied to uh, artificial contraception, right? Is that like, well, yes, in like a kind of abstract, you know, precise theological way, it is a grave matter. But in practice, because of there's so many, you know, circumstances and people don't have full free will and exercising, you know, you know, this act, right, that in practice, virtually, if not always, it's a venial sin, right? That is one way that like, you know, is very clearly consistent with the catechism and the church's teaching. And I would also propose that like, for most Catholics, especially conservative Catholics, like that's what they believe in practice, right? Whether it's a systematic theological understanding or not, they're like, well, yeah, it's wrong, right? Just like, I mean, you know, looking at a woman lustfully, like that's wrong. You shouldn't do that, right? That's bad. But like, if you do, like, you're not going to go to hell for that, right? Uh, it's a vice, you know, or overeating, right? Or, you know, being, you know, mean to your coworkers, right? Or lazy at work, right? Like, these are things that we should confess. And these are wrong. These are a failure of the ideal of the Christian life. But like, we should not have any anxiety over our salvation over these issues. I think the I think the point that people struggle with, at least on an intellectual level, when you, you know, talk about birth control or masturbation, for example, is, you know, it. I mean, you know, when it happens, like, right, like, like, it happens, you know, you've done it, it's quote unquote grave matter as opposed to, well, okay. Did I eat at what point, at what point in the eating process did it become gluttony? At what point in my <laughs> imagination about this was woman that did cooking? it cross? The, the, yeah. What was the, the tipping one? point? Right. Like <laughs> it, it, there's no, it's, it's gray. It's discretionary. Whereas these are very specific acts. Mm-hmm that have a clear end point you don't have to yeah i mean like you know what happens and now okay now do what i have did i have requisite knowledge did i have uh free will i think it's really hard not to become scrupulous about that because how do how do we judge our own capacity to know and 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 i and i think for a lot of us we just err on this side of i'm just going to go to confession because Am I just being too easy on myself? Like, I think that's the, that's especially for masturbation. I don't have as much insight into the, to the birth control thing. Cause that's not something we've ever dealt with, but that's, I think the real squeamish part of being a Catholic that uh, I think 
a lot of people struggle with that we try to kind of unpack on this show because that's just a very real world common experience oh, i think for a lot of guys so so this isn't the exclusive issue but this is the main th- experience of like why most people end up leaving the church mm-hmm. so most most people who end up leaving the catholic church and i don't mean like becoming a non-practicing i mean like you know if you ask them like are you catholic and they will tell you no okay Right. That's the category of people we're talking mm-hmm. about. Um, you know, it's almost like it's like 75% of them leave the Catholic Church between the ages of like 10 and 18. What's happening there? Right. What are they struggling with? And it's basically like one of three basic reasons. Right. Um, metaphysics about God. And because, like, honestly, you know, th- this is something. In, I would say actually of things that like I actually really appreciate about like Bishop Barron, you know, this is probably one of the, like the big ones where like the reality is, is that many people grow up with a idolatrous and false concept of who God is, right? Um, the God that many uh, people and it's not just Catholics. I mean, it's just all kinds of religious people, right? Um, we aren't special in this regard is that like the kind of God is basically an ego projection, of a petty tyrant um that either you know like that basically does what i want to do right and that is who that's the god that people encounter and you know it's like that has much more to do with zeus right and lucifer and satan right and baal than it has anything to do with god Mm -hmm. right and so when people encounter that right that metaphysics are like wow you know what that's a bad God. I don't believe. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's one of the big reasons why people leave. Mm-hmm. The other one, uh, which is definitely in the second one is the most common, right? Is this struggle with the masturbation issue? Cause this is the first encounter people have with the sexual ethics issue. Um, and then, you know, n- connected with the masturbation, right. Is also immediately going to like premarital sex. Yeah. Because premarital sex is extremely common and it's yeah. not just even whether or not you do it. Right. And I think this is important. Right. So it's not just like, well, I want to masturbate or I want to have extramarital sex. Right. And so I think this is so natural and I can't understand why this is wrong. I'm, I, you know, so like obviously the religion I belong to, you know, especially if, especially if you're Catholic, because like Catholics are very, you know, often we get that package you were talking about. And you're like, well, if, 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 you know, me just you know wanking it you know is like if that's going to be what god says like mm, eternal yeah. fire and burn hell for you all i'm like yeah out of here yeah right you know like and that's like you know that's a big break point but it's not even just the like well i did it because here's the thing even if you're not doing it your friends are right the people you're close to are and you're like okay so it's like my friend, you know, Craig over here, is he going to burn in the fiery pits of all eternity? Like, I know he wakes it. And they're good people. They're not evil people, right? Yeah. Well, that's the issue that I have, too, is that, you know, can I be more merciful than God? Because I feel like I can see the good in a lot of people. And, there's, yeah. you know, I just really wrestle with that. Well, and that's what ties back into that, like, petty ego tyrant concept of God, right? These feed back off on each other, Right. Um, and then the other one, of course, is, you know, conflict with science, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, you know, a lot of people grow up, you know, learning 
maybe not create, you know, maybe not, you know, creationism, but like, uh, like a lot of people who grow up in very religious environments, a default scientific skepticism, yeah. right? You can't trust evolution and stuff. Yeah. yeah, you can't trust the, you know, the vaccines, you can't trust, you know, the evolution, you can't trust the liberal professors who are mm -hmm. atheists. And there's all kinds of different things. But basically, right, like science is at best tolerable, right? Because it makes like iPhones or something, right? Yeah. Like, other <laughs> right. than that, other yeah. than that, it's bad. Be, be very and, suspicious of it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And when kids are going through that, right, then they come into contact with school and they start to get educated. And they're like, actually, like science is amazing, right? Yeah. Like I'm learning about history and literature and mathematics and biology and chemistry and physics and like all these things. I'm like, this is amazing. Like if my religion is like deeply skeptical of this, well, my religion just doesn't seem, it seems to be based on kind of like, <laughs> I don't know, like Bronze Age, like stories about cheap fucking. Like, I don't really, I don't really understand like why that should be the standard, right? Over, you know, my experience with uh, the, the the academic institutions that are just really like people are finding like very persuasive and like round. And I'm like, this is really serious. Like, this should be the standard upon which we like guide knowledge and truth on. Um, all of that happens in middle school and high school. Makes By sense. the time they hit college, mm -hmm. like they've most people have already decided, right? And I think that shows of just how broken Catholic or not Catholicism is. That it's like, here are these kids. I mean, like we're losing them when they when they don't even when they're not even emancipated adults. We can tell them to do whatever we want. Right. We can put them in a Catholic institution. We can decide who their friends are, what they're going to eat for dinner. And there's we're still losing them. That's a that is indicative of systemic problems. Yeah. Now, what I'm... The solution is that's a different question. But like <laughs> and that's my always my problem I've had with like conservative Catholics, conservative Catholics like, well, there is no problem. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, we just need a. We just need to communicate the Catholic faith in like, you know, with like four in 4K with like better audio. Yeah. Right. Right. Like that'll get them, you know, or um, I was like, there was this one thing uh, and I'm going to this is the part I'm going to pick on like Bishop Barron, because I think he's really emblematic of like this whole strategy is, you know, he was like um, putting together a drive to send out Bibles to college students. Right. Mm -hmm. First of all, one, they're in college. They're already gone yeah <laughs> they already left yeah um and two i i made a tweet it was like you know <clears throat> talking about how you know basically everyone's already having premarital sex and using artificial contraception but don't worry their 42nd you know free bible that's what's going to get them yeah that's not going to cut it folks right um but of course this is hard right you know like it's like well what do we do about this? And and that's what I try to help, you know, working with people of like deconstruction. And I think, right, that one part of like realizing that like when we interpret these things, you know, just because something is inherently grave matter. By the way, this is what part of what you guys are asking about, like the distinction between like gluttony, right? And like sexual issues. There's a clear like this mm. is a discrete act. Yes. Yes. Right. And mm. so 
it seems hard for me to say, well, I just, I didn't know. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Kind of that, right. Yeah. But of course, like that really <clears throat> is understanding the metaphysics of like sin. Right. Because when we say this, like what we choose, right. Really is of like, how free are you? Right. So when we look at something like, there are a lot of people like, like for myself, right? Like I don't have any temptation for like smoking marijuana, right? I mean, they're going to be like bowls of marijuana everywhere. You know, everybody's smoking. And I'm like, I don't have like the slightest inclination of like, yeah, I want to get high too. And it's not because I'm a good person. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to be like very clear, right? It's just like, I I don't have that activity, right? Right. Like I, I just, I don't like weed. I, I, I just don't like it. So I don't want it. And so I have no interest in that. Right. Um, however, right. There are lots of people who are like, I, I mean, they crave this stuff. Mm. Right. And so like, if they're excessively smoking and getting high all the time, like, do they have really full free will? Unlike me. Right. So it's very different. If I, who I have no inclination to this, I'm just like, you know what? I'm just gonna, even though I have no like desire to do so, just like just for spites reasons, um, I'm just gonna get like like knocked out, you know, crazed, you know, high tonight. That's me with full free will, right? Yeah. Um, not you know somebody who's like, well, yeah, I really struggle with this like all the time, right? Like I just. I don't know how to live. I don't know how to operate. I can't sleep if I don't smoke, right? There's all kinds of people who have these kinds of issues. And so, you know, just in the same way that we could think of like, oh, like drugs, right? Like it's an act, right? Um, Of like, uh, you know, especially when people say, there's different theologies on this, but like definitely some people are like, hey, you know, if you like black out, right? Like that's a discrete act and a violation, right? You know, if you've separated, you know, the consciousness right from, you know, yourself. And so that's like an, that's a grave evil and it's a grave matter. Like that's a very distinct act. And you know that you're like, okay, I don't remember what happened last night because I drank too much. Well, there you go. Right. You're yeah. like, right. Um, and, and, but the thing is like, we have to understand is like when we look at like free will, free will isn't just like, oh, I know in an abstract way that this is hap- like this is wrong and I'm doing it. Right. That's not that's what not what that means. Right. Because this is part of fallen human nature. And if we actually start to reexamine ourselves, we see we do this all the time with very little things. Right. Like, oh, I should be very honest you know, I should tell my wife that like, Hey, you know what? Like the real reason I didn't show up on time last night was because of this. I know that's what I should say, but you're like, yeah, but I'll just say this. Right. Like, Oh yeah, I was busy. Right. Like, you know, like, Hey, you know what? Like, okay, I should say this, right. This is the honest appropriate thing. And she deserves that. Right. But I'm not going to go do it. Right. But you, you know, it's a matter of weakness. And so I think when we, part of how we deconstruct that idea is we start to examine like our foreknowledge of like discrete acts, right? Uh, of other things, right? And this actually helps deconstruct and break down this like, why is sex so different? Because sex isn't really different. Sex is actually, this is actually the central problem with a lot of the ethos around sexuality is we want to make sex as if it's morally so unique and different from other acts 
right? And the way to overcome these issues is by re-examining, like, you know, your question about truthfulness and lying, right? You know, look at questions of like gluttony or like immodesty, right? Like, you know, immodesty isn't just, uh, you know, again, part of this, help this deconstruction process. Modesty isn't just about like, oh, well, I'm showing too much skin, okay? Like, that's not really what immodesty is about. Immodesty is about, you know, drawing undue attention to yourself, um, which we do all the time, right? And that could be because, like, a, probably one of the best examples, just to kind of, like, visualize it, is, like, a two-year-old throwing a tantrum. Mm -hmm. That is extremely immodest, right? That's extremely immodest. And... <clears throat> um. You know, when we start to look at, you know, moral like characters in other areas, right? This, I think, is what helps us break down, you know, um, you know, when we look at like, you know, like our finances, right? Like, you know, when you go and you buy something, that's a frivolous thing to buy. Like that is a discrete specific act. We've all had that. We're like, you know, I shouldn't buy that. I know I shouldn't buy this thing. You know, it's too expensive or I don't need it or whatever. Right. Or I should spend this money on, you know, something else. But you do it anyways, right? That's a discrete act, right? Um, and we start doing this with our whole life and we start like seeing, right? Um, we just like reorienting our mind. And so what happens is that like, it's easier to come back and like, look at this question about like an understanding of like sex, right? Of like, well, why is it that like sex seems so different? That's just a frame a framing like that we have and so part of what we need to do is we need to break out of that frame i'd like to if i can wrote not to break your your stream here but i, I want to make a point that i think is really really important here um <clears throat> one of the layers of, of of that i think has to be understood as it as it relates specifically to the sexual issues and whether it's masturbation or lust or porn all that kind of stuff is that there is a, like, again, not absolute, but a very common fundamental difference in perspective between men and women, husbands and wives, and I think celibates and, let's say, married men. So we we talk about it within the context of married men. I'm too old to remember what it was like to be a teenage boy, but uh, I, one of the... I remember. Okay. <laughs> and I, I kind of wish you were married so that, but what I can tell you, is that marriages, Catholic marriages, especially traditional Catholic marriages, I would say almost universally suffer from this, this disconnect or different experience between husbands and wives. Because just to give you an example, one of the things that transformed my marriage, and we talk about this podcast, is, is my wife coming to the understanding that this stuff is something I struggle with, continue to struggle with, even as, as a married man. She's like, I can't relate to that. She's never had to go to confession and talk about masturbation, not once. Yeah. That's very, very common. And when we had this conversation uh, and I was trying to convey to her like why it happens, she's like, well, it's, you don't just, it doesn't happen. You choose that, right? <laughs> right. In her mind, she could not understand. It's a discreet yeah. act. You do it. Like, and this is, this is absolutely fundamental that, that, that has to be understood, especially by any of the women out there, priests out there, whatever, is that, again, we're not saying it's okay, you have no moral culpability, but the but the 
the freedom to choose not to do this stuff is is profoundly diminished exactly and and, and yeah. my marriage and jonah's marriage transformed amazingly once our spouses understood that because they could not relate to that that was not their experience and, and oh. one of the things that we want to do in the show is reveal that to other people because it's not an easy conversation to have and even if you bring it up the circumstance it may not just hit like something very um i want to say it, there was a very acute situation that happened in my life i'm not going to talk about <laughs> jonah his wife and him started talking about it because she heard us talking about this stuff on the podcast like yeah how do you introduce this to your wife when i mean <laughs> or your priest like talking about it, the priest like real quick not, like I don't really do, I don't really do the masturbation thing on Twitter, you know, like I do lots of other things, but like yeah. part of it is just like, it's so weird, you know? Um, and yet it's like, it's tragic because like, this is a holdover of our Victorian kind of like uh, sexual ethics where like, if we don't talk about it, yeah. it's not real. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And we still have a lot of that, like very prudish attitudes, right? Like, well, because here's the thing, like this masturbation issue, like this is one of the most common prevalent issues that people deal with when it comes to the moral realm, right? Like this is incredibly big issue. And I think it's the biggest, I think it's the biggest issue for most Catholic common. men, at least. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I actually agree with that. It's the most prevalent question and most immediate to mm -hmm. our like, subjective lives, right? Yeah. Uh, especially, you know. Um, you know, in the modern world with, you know, the internet and yes. everything, right? Like, and so this is why, like, this is actually one of the reasons I want to get on your show is because like, you know, I don't have a, I don't have like the best like way to deal with this, like on Twitter is like, but we do need to be like real about it. Right. And, and, you know, when we look at that imbalance, because I know this is really important to you, right? The imbalance between like men and women on this issue, um, I don't think that's really the best way to look at it, actually. Um, okay. And the reason for that is that, like, the divine division, although as generically speaking, does fall around gender lines, it really has to do with individuals. There are certain women who, like, this is bigger issue than it is for some men, right? And we this just haven't run into them yet. Yeah. <laughs> We've heard they exist. We just haven't seen oh. them in the wild yet. Yeah, you need to go uh you need to go to uh the public colleges and uh you know find find them at the bars. Yeah. Um no, but you guys you guys are uh married and all good, so you're yeah. not gonna run into yeah. these uh ladies. Yeah. Um <laughs> But we actually know this through, like, you don't have to go, you know, find them on the streets. Um, you know, you just look at statistics, right? And we look at reported, you know, you know, masturbation issues, you know, and like how often and frequently, like there are definitely women who masturbate uh, significantly more, you know, uh, it's a, it's a much smaller minority, but really what all this is being driven is by your biology, right? Mm -hmm. And your social conditions, right? So depending on their lifestyle and your genetics, right, you're going to have a strong propensity uh, for this or not. Right. Um, and you know, this is like, you know, having a high sex drive is just a normal indication of like overall health and virility. <laughs> yeah. And I, I really do mean that. Right. Yes. Like, 
part of the reason our biology is designed to have low sex drive when we aren't healthy and we aren't you know virile is because it's probably is an indication we should be having children yeah right yeah. so yeah. you know just in the same way that like women will lose uh their cycle if they become too thin right mm -hmm. you lose too much weight mm -hmm. you actually lose the cycle and i'm like well why yeah. well it's because i'm like if you are extremely thin but you know evolution is like determining like you know it's like hey you know what like now is probably not a good time to have kids because yeah. you're starving yeah right like that's mm -hmm. a good indication same thing mm -hmm. is you're very stressed right if you have a lot of stress in your life your sex drive <clears throat> go down a lot right because i'm like okay well if you're really stressed maybe more kids isn't a good solution yeah right yeah um you know and so there's different things like like you know, our biology is driven in a certain way. Like when we're very healthy and we have good genetics and, you know, uh, live a healthy lifestyle and our relationship with our partner is going really well. Yeah. We're going to be really horny. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, because like that's the biologist saying, Hey, you know what? Everything is going great. We should like make more of that. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that's, yep. that's the biological drive. Right. Yep. Um, so I think it's like, you know, it, you know, the best way isn't necessarily to like divide upon like men and women, although th there is important, like this is much more common with men, right? Like, um, you know, women have a, have like evolved, right. And have a really high pressure, uh, you know, to be very different with their sex and sexuality than men, mm -hmm. uh, you know, men's sex drive, you know, to maximize, you know, reproduction, right. Is basically to be horny all the time, always. Mm hmm Right. Mm -hmm. And there's very little biological incentive to like not be that way. Mm -hmm. Whereas women, right, like there's lots of evolutionary pressure to be like, okay, how can we limit, you know, the amount of children we have? Because like, you know, human females actually have like very low fertility rates for like, you know, animals. <laughs> right. So if you have like a dog, right. Like if you allow dogs to reproduce naturally, like they might have a hundred puppies in their lifetime. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is actually pretty typical with like most other like animals in nature is they have like huge numbers of offspring. Right. I mean, just gigantic numbers. Uh, human beings have very few, even when we're like, you know, raw most dog, fertile. Yeah. Raw dog mm. into the backs. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, realistically most you know women have like unless there are some exceptions but like realistically like, you're looking around like 12 ish children is kind of like a natural biological maximum where you know you start basically before you're 18 right and you just repeat the process you know all the way up until you lose fertility rate um you know so that's kind of like a high that's like, like a high end you know, um, obviously there's lots of biological exceptions, right? I mean, there's, there's women like you can do more, but generally speaking, like, but 12 offspring as in your total lifespan, like from a naturalist perspective, that's very low, right? That's very few offspring, right? I mean, like you can have a Labrador, you know, a golden Labrador have 12 puppies in one litter. Right. Well, and and when you and when you factor in how frequently humans have sex compared to yeah. animals, right? Like yeah. they're kind of one and done and they're you know, like we're yep. so yeah, I agree. Because we also evolved to have a lot of sex. Yeah. 
right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, sex, you know, has like, a, you know, obviously a reproductive function, but it also has a pair bonding function, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, uh, this is, you know, basically the production of oxytocin in the mind, mm-hmm. right? And oxytocin transforms our behavior, right? So we become much more altruistic, um, you know, more affectionate, you know, physical. It reduces testosterone levels, right? Uh, increases estrogen levels for both men and women, by the way. Um, and, you know, it, it, it causes like imprinting, you know, on our partner. So we start to enjoy our partner more. We are more familiar with them. So all these things, oxytocin is like a primary driver of it. And this is like a key component of sex. This is why, like, when you start to have less sexual activity, right? Like relationships become harder. (laughs) Oh oh, yeah. 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 And I and I think that the biological aspect of it is all fine and good, but I also understand the traditional standpoint of um, you should just avoid those things in the hopes of getting you know attaining salvation in the end. You know, and you just have to suffer through life, and that's the that's the good part of it. You know, the suffering is good for you, and uh, just that that pays dividends in the end. And there there is some safety in that, I think. But then you also at the same time might live in a way where you're portraying a less than enjoyable life. And I don't know what the correct way to live is. You know, does God want you, you know, should we live in a happy household where sex may be done, not always in the, you know, finished in the appropriate manner or where birth control is used, or do you grit your teeth and never have sex and just trudge through life? I don't know. Bear it. Yeah. Um, you know, of course that's the big question. And, you know, the reality, and I think this is an important fact that like, regardless of your perspectives on this, like the over overwhelming percentage of Catholics, they've already made that decision. Mm-hmm. Right. And that is, they're going to use artificial contraception. Mm-hmm. Like that is, that is the ipso facto norm. Right. I mean, it's virtually universal. Mm-hmm. And I think that like, that's, that's a really important thing for us to kind of like digest and like really come to realize is that like, regardless of whatever theology or like how people speak about it or the church speaks about it, or even the people who use it, what their moral views are on it. Right. Um, Catholics have made a universal decision on this question, like in the United States uh, amongst Catholics, right? Like it's 4% of Catholics who believe that artificial contraception is immoral. Four percent. Wow. It's very low. You know, when you ask when you ask Catholics real opinion on the subject, for self-identified conservatives, right, who are Catholic, right? 88% of them say that they disagree with the church's teaching on artificial contraception. And so the traditionals would say that that doesn't really matter. Yeah. Because the truth is the exactly. truth. Yeah, that's the problem. And 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 I'm I I sympathize to some degree with that, but I also sympathize with what you say is like, can we just like, do we just disregard the fact that this is statistically impossible or most people just can't or won't follow this? Um, That's, that was sort of the turning point for me that kind of made me a former traditionalist is I just, (laughs) yeah. Like, Oh yeah. I I just had to turn off too much of my brain and experience yeah to make this all work and um and this is why i think 
you know, I propose, you know, because I, I talk to, I have, you know, conservative friends, you know, and I talk to conservative people. And like, I understand, like, they may not totally embrace, you know, my worldview on artificial contraception. I understand that. Right. And in many ways, like, I'm not trying to get people to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. But first and foremost, by realizing how ubiquitous it is, right. I think the question about like, you know, what is the severity of the moral, you know, guilt in this. And I think that like, regardless of your belief on like, whether artificial contraception is immoral intrinsically or not, I think we have to be real with ourselves that like, as a matter of practice, right? Most of this is venial sin, right? It's an understandable, natural part of human fallenness and weakness. And so we need to be gentle on ourselves and our fellow Catholics and, you know, potentially children who are like growing up. It's like, Hey, you know what? Like understand that, like, you're probably going to do this and like, that's okay. Like God still loves you. Right. And you need to not like, uh, live in a state of despair because you're doing what everyone else does, you know? Um, and I think that's like really important. And for those who have strong convictions, like, Hey, you know what? Like artificial contraception and these other acts, you know, unnatural acts are really intrinsically wrong. I think what my question is like, well, if that is true, right? Like what kind of social structures and societal changes do we need to get people off of this? And my answer is like, if you really yeah. think about that, like we are talking about like going pretty full Amish, mm -hmm. right? Like, <laughs> you know, the connection between modernity and the sexual revolution are so intertwined, they might as well be the same thing. And I think that that's something that like where from my perspective is like, well, the question isn't whether or not we should accept the sexual revolution or not. We have to. Right. If you believe in living in the modern world of any kind of modernity at all. And I mean, like even like 1800s, like, you know, industrialism um, that we have to accept the uh, sexual revolution. But the real is real question is once we accept that as like an ipso like just a fact, right? And then like, okay, we need to stop like fighting this and we need to embrace this. Then we can answer the more interesting and complex question of like, how do we actually deal with this, right? Because I think a lot of people think that are like, oh, well, I've accepted the sexual revolution. Therefore, you know, gay orgies every Saturday night, right? You know, like that is not what that means, right? You, you can accept that I'm like, hey, you know what? Like we have to change our sexual ethics, right? Um, but like there are different ways to approach this, like, you know, and there's a whole host of different options and like questions, but like, once we embrace that, and I would actually even say like accepting and acknowledging, right. Like that, like most of these sins are essentially venial, right. And are just like obsessive compulsiveness about them. Like that's part of an answer to like accepting the sexual revolution, right. You're like, Hey, you know what? Like. Back in the day, yeah, it used to be a big deal because like human condition was different. Our environment was different, right? The the factors and motivation for these things were just fundamentally different. Um, in the same way that we could think about like, well, you know, like slavery, right? Or, um, you know, usury or, um, uh, you know, like religious liberty, for example, right? Where to like, or like, for example, like the death penalty, I'll, I'll stick on the death penalty, right? Right. And it was like, well, you know what? We know it's wrong, like intrinsically wrong. Like you should never use the death penalty to punish criminals. 
But like back in the day, like, yeah, it was really hard. Like because of structural reasons in society, it was understandable. Like, hey, you know what? Obviously that's wrong, but like we shouldn't judge our ancestors harshly because like they lived in a different societal structure where like it was kind of like we could say it's like it was a venial kind of like, you know, problem of justice versus today. Now it's so easy for us not to do it. That like we have a higher moral culpability for this. Same thing we could look at, say, like slavery, right? Like yeah. you know, slavery yeah. in a time past, like obviously, like let's say, you know, if you're of this persuasion, you could say, well, that was really wrong, right? And or, you know, however you know your view on slavery is. But like it was understandable because people were so poor and destitute and like most people could barely even like have enough calories to like survive. And this was like one of the very few ways that anyone could acquire wealth. There's lots of different reasons you could say like, well, it's understandable that our ancestors, you know, turned to slavery. But like today, like we don't need to like beat people and like, you know, put them into the fields to like pick cotton like that's just like egregiously wrong and like maybe it was understandable for our past you know you know ancestors who have done that but for us we have a different moral framework that for us doing that like that's just so morally unacceptable because there's no re there's not even a justification or reasoning why right and i would say is like this is a good way of like approaching that even like in the most conservative way of like to the sexual revolution. And it's like, well, yes, of course these are like, you know, intrinsically wrong and they are serious issues. And that's why like we see all kinds of problems like divorce rates and, you know, mm -hmm. abortion and, you know, broken families. Like clearly this is not good, right? Because yeah. we see the fruits of this are bad. But because our, we live in a different societal structure, it's understandable and we shouldn't have like a lot of moral like judgment and guilt to people who don't live up to those standards um and just like accept that is like hey you know what like you should try for this ideal but you know like we get it you know if you can't do that and you shouldn't be hard on yourself like i think that's that's probably the most conservative you know way of approaching of accepting the sexual revolution yeah i want to i i i'm there with you about 80 90 percent and uh i think you hit a really really important point and i want to i want to I'm going to take, I'm going to offer just a slightly different, different approach here. As, as I observe, there's sort of in um, either traditional or conservative Catholic approaches, I see kind of two things going on. One, you have sort of the old, the red pill traditionalist who basically say, um, use the marital debt. Uh, wife should never say no to her husband have as many children as possible, uh, you know, guard your children or whatever against all the stuff out there yeah. uh, is sort of the one approach being, being, you know, we got to go back to the old way. Yeah. Not even this natural family planning stuff. This is all yeah. modern shit too. We're going to yeah. go way back. Okay. <laughs> so that's kind of yeah. one, that's kind of one approach. And then I, the other approach I see is sort of this, theology of the body christopher west type of attitude which is no no we don't have to do that you can use natural family planning and 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 the reason why you do it is because sex is this holy trinitarian reenactment of the mass within the within the marriage but yeah. but then they add on to it oh by the way don't be 
don't be masturbating don't and i'm not encouraging that but they're like all these illicit things and the suffering you know it's it's good for your marriage if because of natural family planning you have to not have sex for a year i call better (laughs) like that's so that's sort of the second and we're kind of in the middle and i i will say this i am deeply grateful that we've used natural family planning our whole life i i wish every catholic had the opportunity to use it because it my knowledge of my wife my wife's understanding that i understand her is so profound that i i wish every catholic could enjoy that yeah Um, and and now we're in our mid 40s we have nine kids we're kind of hopefully done we're learning a new nfp method we've got the whole fertility monitor and sticks and we're we're doing everything i don't care how much it costs let's figure out a way that we don't have to get pregnant again what but but then the the then then the thing is okay yet you still have abstinence so what happens am am i do i have to like rigidly avoid any 2352 violations are there other things that catholics can do yeah i think i think if you take one or two of those pieces out of there or like you say not treat them as a lot of problems doesn't it i think it's a beautiful beautiful package that we could (laughs) offer the church and the world but I don't see anyone else out there offering this. <laughs> and I may be a heretic for saying it. So disclaim anything. I disclaim we'll, anything I've said. We'll call it the uh we'll call it the Craig method. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah. <laughs> it's in theory. We don't know if it's got the imprimatur yet, but yeah. that's where I'm at. Yeah. Well but when I when I hear somebody say they're learning a new NFP method, that, that means they're having another kid soon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um Yeah, you know, I think it's like, you know, obviously, like a lot of people can be like really negative on the whole NFP stuff for like a really obvious reasons. Um, Like, I'm not like, I'm not an anti NFP person, you know, like, I think it's really great option for some people. Right. And I, I, I've, you're not the only one I've heard of the story. They're like, you know, like it changed my life. Like, it's like the best thing that could have ever happened to us. And I'm like, that's great. You know, like, I don't really like understand, like, why we need to be like hostile towards that. Now, hostility comes from is that often many people who are practicing NFT also have like really deplorable, like theocratic fascist, like worldviews um, towards the rest of humanity. Mm-hmm. And that I would actually say that's the real objectionable part. Right. Um, and like, you know, running around and screaming at everyone, you're all going to burn in hell um that's just not like just a lot of people just aren't like super excited about that you know i don't know why i don't know why that sales pitch doesn't work weird (laughs) um not the best um but yeah i think this is where we get to like you know wherever we are in our like our journey towards this like i think again like the most important thing is to go back to like what we started right it's like what is like Christ's yoke is the light yoke right you know like whatever we're discerning in our lives Right. We need to keep that in mind of like if it's if like this yoke is a burden, right? If it's a heavy yoke, that's not the yoke of Christ. Right. Mm-hmm. Christ came to liberate humanity from the from the slavery of sin, right? And of the rigidity and the artificial like Pharise- you know, like law of the Pharisees, right? You know, Christ says, you know. You take all of these burdens and you create these great burdens that you aren't willing to lift yourself and you place them onto the people, 
right? You teach the traditions of men as if they are the teaching or the traditions of God, mm -hmm. right? And like the Pharisees, you know, are here with us today just as much as they were in Jesus's time, mm -hmm. right? Um, and of course, like, you know, Jesus's main objection to the Pharisees is the fact that like the Pharisees aren't just bad people, right? Because like there's lots of bad people, mm -hmm. right? There's the tax collectors and the prostitutes mm -hmm. and you know the the you know the idol worshippers and there's all kinds, right? Humanity is filled with a great diversity and plethora of sin, mm -hmm. right? Um, the real problem with the Pharisees is that they not only are they sinners but they drive men from the church. That's the right. Their sins don't just well. Oh, you know, we can ignore Thomas because, you know, he's a party boy and mm -hmm. like, you know, he's just a bad Catholic, mm -hmm. right? I'm not driving people from the sacraments, mm -hmm. right? The Pharisees are the ones who are driving people from the temple of God. <laughs> and it's like, that's why it's so egregious what they're doing, right? Is that they're, they're hoarding, uh, you know, God's grace uh, and casting people into uh, the darkness. Catholicism yeah. is supposed to be the universal church, but when I see it becoming a very exclusive club of people that can follow it, that's where my little alarm bells go off. Mm -hmm. Well, this is what the first council was mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. right? The very first council was about this issue of what does it mean to be Catholic? Mm -hmm. Catholicism itself, right? And there were many who were like, well, Catholicism is for the Jews, right? And the Jews mm -hmm. are the Catholic religion, mm -hmm. right? You've been grafted onto us. Mm -hmm. We are the chosen people, right? All the nations of the world will come to us and will, you know, accept Judaism, right? And now with Jesus Christ, who is our Messiah, we are the true Jews, the true Israel. And so all of us have to come and bend the knee, you know, and conform to, you know, the law of Moses, et cetera, right? And like the Pope supported this stuff, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, St. James, you know, the, you know, the Bishop of Jerusalem supported this stuff, right? This was very common. It was the prevalent, you know, theological position. Um, and it was St. Paul, right. Who comes in crashing in of like, no, this is wrong. This is a fundamental distortion of Christ's mission, right? In Christ, you know, this is why we have St. Paul, right? who says, you know, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, right? We're going to break down all of these ethnic barriers, right? Um, because, like, we really are Catholic, right? We are universal. And so whenever we try to uh, compartmentalize the Catholic faith to a certain group or perspective or, you know, personality or, you know, class of people, a race, a political ideology, any ism right when we say this ism is the catholic ism mm -hmm. we know we have gone astray mm -hmm. because now we're creating a a man-made uh religion right we're making a particular religion for me and my friends right that's not the catholic religion catholic religion is the universal religion um and so you know like this sin right i i go like it's the sin of judah Mm -hmm. right it's the proud right the pride like we're the best and we're the strongest and we're the most pure and we're the most radical 
right? We're the most original, right? Like we have the inheritance from, you know, <clears throat> tradition, right? Like, so we can lord it over everyone. Well, like, <laughs> and, and it can, it can happen. Like it's, it's so seductive because you're well-intended, you're zealous for God and the truth and, and are really unaware that it's happening to you. I think that's the bigger, oh. the bigger trap here. Yeah. Well, and you know, it, <clears throat> that's part of what like, is so appealing, right? Because there's this idea, I think, that a lot of people are like, okay, if I get into this certain corner, right, of a worldview or lifestyle, I will somehow now be protected from sin, mm -hmm. right, of the temptations of the world, right? Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. Pride is always the sin that overcomes all of these, like, artificial barriers you can put yourself in, right? Because if you're like, well, I'm... I've now created like the perfect Catholic life in the perfect mm -hmm. Catholic world. I'm like, well, that's when pride strikes. Yeah. Right. This is yeah. where like Lucifer, right? Like Lucifer wasn't some like miserable creature, right? He was the most wise and the most beautiful and the most powerful, the most amazing creature that God had created. And it's he who fell from pride, right? Because mm -hmm. he's like, ah, I am so good and so perfect and so amazing and so wonderful, right? I am going to aspire equality with God. That's right. And that's pride. And so, you know, we always have to be reminded of like, you know, no matter how perfect the world seems, right? Like the more perfect and excellent our life comes, the more the temptation towards pride will come, right? And so none of us are safe, right? Like <laughs> the devil will always come after us. Yeah. And, and pride people aren't prideful in ugly things or miserable things, right? People have pride in things yeah. that are amazing, beautiful, yes. yeah. excellent, fantastic. Mm -hmm. And, and this is what I think it's tragic. Cause like, um, you know, there's a lot of things that like I miss from being a traditionalist. And one of them was like the liturgy, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Like I like a lot of the tratty stuff. Like mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm a very high churchy kind of person. Mm -hmm. Um, I love the bells and whistles, you know, mm -hmm. like I go to Notre Dame, you know, uh, uh, we have a giant basilica. It's beautiful. Like our, um, mm, we have our tabernacle. It's literally like 20 feet tall and covered in gold. Mm -hmm. uh, like literally it's 20 yep. feet tall, you know, it's all covered in gold. Um, you know, like I love that stuff, but you know, we have to remember, right. That like, just as Christ was saying, it's like, right, like, you know, what makes holy is not the temple, right? It's God who dwells in the temple, right? It's not the gold of the temple that is sacred. It's that fact that God lives there, right? And that's really an important temptation that we have to remember. Like, if we build a great, beautiful, you know, temple, right, is that temple for God or is that a temple for man to say, look, Look at us, right? We have built this great tower and it touches heaven, right? Like that's that's the Tower of Babel. Yeah. Right? You yeah. know, and so we have to remember like, well, if we just, you know, cover this all in Catholicism, somehow we've like magically protected ourselves. And it's like, no, you know, always temptation leaks in of, you know, creating idols of even, you know, to make an idol, of the liturgy to make an idol of the temples uh that we build to make an idol of like theological schools of thought like i think one of the most most like miraculous important like miracles that god 
you know, uh, did for us was to to kill Thomas Aquinas. You know, his <laughs> work early age, forty nine or whatever he was. Yeah, just and and his work was unfinished, right? And I'm like, I think like God, you know, like protected us because then like to remind us that like this man is not the end all be all of thought. I've criticized Thomas Aquinas a time or two on this channel. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That, you know, that's good. Like that's because like. Because just as we can make idols, right, of yeah. like like clay and iron, right, of wood, we can also make idols of saints, right? Like Tom, you shouldn't worship Thomas Aquinas above the Lord God. No, I think that's true. You know, I I see that. You know, I used to love Alphonsus Liguori, and now he, hmm. I just have no no interest in that. And I I think that's a big hazard. Is you know if if Aquinas said it, like who the hell is going to listen to some goofballs challenging Aquinas? Like like there's no there's no uh, critical mass of people that are going to get up and challenge Aquinas. There isn't a critical mass of people that will get up and want to challenge the church's teaching on masturbation. They're just no one's going to do that, right? Like that's that's the pitfalls of all this. Yeah. So I think that's important to remember, you know, it's yeah. like when we think that like we've we've created the perfect system, mm -hmm. right? And like, oh, well, like, how can you say that these things are bad? And it's like, you know, we're not saying that the, the temple of God is bad, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? What's bad is how you are worshiping it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's the problem, right? You've turned the tabernacle into, you know, a golden calf, mm -hmm. right? Um and so we always have to be remembered and that that like helps us bring humility down of just like whenever we think we've got it all figured out yeah mind us like we don't yeah you know uh because we're not god right and we shouldn't aspire like to pretend as if we are um and we shouldn't treat things that we've created you know um as if they are like of god and that's because that's again that's the pharisee right like you know to treat the traditions of men as if they're the traditions of God, right? Like Thomas Aquinas isn't the teachings of God, right? Yeah. Like they're teachings of a man, yeah, a holy man, a wise yeah. man, right? Yeah. And we have a lot to learn. Like this is why we have saints, right? To like bring in the family. But like yeah. we just have to remember it. I'm like, yeah, but he's not infallible. Yeah. These are the words of the Holy Spirit, right? And so we must be discerning of just like any other human being, right? Like we're all broken, fallible creatures, um, and so, yeah, I, I would say it's like, that's just like a really important thing that it, I know that for me that like, you know, tragically, like, um, some of the things that I'm still a little bit attached to, you know, to, mm -hmm. some yeah, that, and, and I think like, it's tragic because like, you know, there's, there's a, a anthropological, like, uh, a phenomena that's called uh, schismogenesis. And basically, this is what it is, is that when two communities who used to be one, right, mm -hmm. like shared a single mm -hmm. culture, um, they start to divide and become like culturally very distinct, especially in their external manifestations. And this is caused by a, uh, a differing of sacred beliefs. So when I have fundamentally different sacred values, right? Like what I hold is like, oh, this is what is really, really real. We can't question this. This is non-negotiable. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like this mm -hmm. is what we are. And if look, if you're not on board with this, well, then you're not one of us. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so when that, when you have these differing like uh, sacred values, the schismogenesis process 
is the the external cultural manifestations of these communities start to be in reference of like, okay, well, we do this, so we're going to do something different. And so we kind of like artificially create two visibly very different communities and cultures. Um, and that's unfortunately what has happened with like the Novus Ordo and the, the traditional Latin mass mm -hmm. is that the traditional Latin mass has been filled with people who fundamentally have very different sacred values than the rest of the Catholics. They really do. And because of that, right, they are constantly seeking out external forms to distinguish themselves from the rest of the church. And, and it's sad because like this process, right, also causes people who aren't part of that community then to lose those cultural images and icons and, and you know, because we're like, well, we're not like those people, right? Because we really are different. And so it's kind of tragic that this is like pulling apart uh, in, in like, all these kind of culture, like, you know, do you receive, you know, the Eucharist on the tongue or on your hands? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, depending on how you view the sacred mm -hmm. values in the Catholic church, right? Like, well, you kind of, we're going to force you into one of these two camps. Mm -hmm. right? And this happens with everything like mm -hmm. Latin or non-Latin, right? You know, uh, incense or no incense, right? Like, you know, does father wear the, the 1950s, mm -hmm. you know, outfit, yeah. you know, yeah. or, mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we get pulled apart. Now, for me, because I'm self-conscious of this, like uh, for me, I'm always trying to like reclaim, you know, some of these aesthetic powers. Right. But ultimately, one day, like the only solution out of this is for like, you know, non-traditionalist Catholics to look at the aesthetical tradition, right, that we have and to create fundamentally new aesthetic tradition high art, high liturgy, but it's got to be different because if we, we can't like, unfortunately, you know, the TLM and like the way it's practiced today, like the water, you know, the well has been poisoned and mm -hmm. we can't poison it. Yeah. Right? It's kind of like a great sin, so to speak, is that like, you know, they, cause that's the thing, like the saying of the traditional Latin mass was born out of sin, mm -hmm. right? Because this is Lefebvre. Right. You know, right there, you know, it's like he goes into full schism and rejects the church for authority. Right. So like from the very beginning, right, once the Novus Ordo comes in, those who say the Latin mass, right, it's born out of sin. Right. And it's always broken. And it's really sad because like in many ways, like it will, you know, maybe maybe far into the future, you know, one day. You know, but like, I think for all practical purposes, like, um, it's been, it's been poisoned and sure. we're, unfortunately, we're going to see that come out more because, you know, there are some traditionalists who are still in the church and the reality is like, they are not going to be in the church much longer. You know, the formal schism is happening before our eyes and, you know, that whole kind of attempt to try to heal back, uh, you know, unfortunately I think is not going to succeed. <clears throat> Here's what I want to do, Thomas. Um, um, we've been going on for yeah. a while. Uh, I I would like to have you come back on, and maybe we can unpack this whole yeah, because it's ELM perfect, isn't it? Yeah, and I not that I we just talk about sex on the show, but that's a lot of what we talk about. I, I think that I think what you're talking about right now is a, a very interesting topic that I have 
have some feelings on, but I think to do it justice, we should have you come back and, and do it, uh, do it the right way. Um, so here's what I want to do, Thomas. Um, uh, I want to wrap up here. I'm going to give you a chance to give your final words if you want. I think we've, uh, I think we've said enough to, to rile up the, the Twitter, <laughs> Twitter verse with enough people that will come over and angrily comment on our show. So let's wrap this one up. Okay. Um, and then um, we'll we'll have you back again to talk about some of these other things. Uh, before we do, uh, Jonah, was there anything uh, that yeah. you wanted to cover before we wrap up here? No, I think I'm good. Okay. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on, Thomas. If there's any parting words you you have, or I'll link to your Twitter or whatever you want below. But if there's any pitch you want to make, final pitch uh, in the next oh. 30 seconds or so, and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah, I would say is that like at the core is like accepting the sexual revolution does not mean, you know, you want gay orgies every weekend. Mm -hmm. Right. By embracing the sexual revolution, we can find one of many paths like we we can finally start to engage like what is the correct you know, moral path for human civilization forward, you know, because we can't solve these problems if we are still in denial about what has happened to humanity. Mm -hmm. We have to accept that. And once we accept that, then we can channel the moral life of, you know, humanity and society and the church into like the best direction. Mm -hmm. So I think that like, that's kind of for me is the core and you know like there's lots of different ways of approaching it. when i talked to you about it's like i think probably one of the most conservative ways of approaching these issues mm-hmm. um but um you know once we accept that then we can start to really tackle practically how can we make a, a better sexual you know ethics and a way of living because we all have to live in this world Mm -hmm. like like these ideas can't like we can't just say like okay here's these ideas and then put them away right like this is why the sexual ethics issues is so important because like it is so immediately pertinent to our day-to-day lives Mm -hmm. right that's yeah that that's that's why uh, like i said that's why i have i have almost no interest for church politics and and all that stuff anymore this is my day-to-day existence my moral (laughs) existence that's exactly. why we do this show, and and maybe maybe eventually I'll come back to that stuff. But uh, this this is something that I think is is real and affects almost every Catholic, especially every Catholic man on a regular basis. So we uh, appreciate you coming in, and 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 we would like to have you come back and maybe talk about oh, these things some well, more. So I'll say one last thing is you know that's what um, you know uh, Pope Paul the first said you know, about this issue is this is the most critical, you know, crisis in the church because it impacts every single young family, you know, Catholic family. Yep. Right. And so this idea that we can, you know, abstract it away, you know, we said that, uh, you know, when with, you know, Arius and Nestorianism, right. Like those were concerns for the bishops. Right. But this issue around sexuality concerns all the laity, Mm -hmm. every person. It's so real. And so, like, we need to embrace that of like, yeah, like, we can't just ignore this and we can't compartmentalize it away um, and we can't just dismiss people Um, like we have to really wrestle with this because this is our lived day to day moral existence. And yeah. Amen. Very good. Thank you, Thomas. It was nice having you on. Thank you, Jonah. You bet. 
And until uh, next yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Until next time, everyone. Bye. Okay. Bye. Have a good one. <laughs>